2020 vision, renew 2020, and uh, we were all so excited. We're like, man, this is going to be amazing, the best year ever, and, and we, let's start with new eyes and new hope and all that, and we get through January and February, and I'm in New York City in February last year in Chinatown, right, as everything broke loose, and we're on the subway, and my kids are like, we're in Chinatown. On t- February 2020, there's a virus, Dad. I was like, ah, it'll be no big deal. And, uh, boy, those words were, were different, weren't they? And, uh, and you know, I, I really thought this year as we came into this time, you know, let, let's, just, let's just really take a moment as we enter 2021, and, and let's just really look at where we are as a people, and let's just take a real honest look at where we are as a country with some things. And, and I remember back years ago, you remember when 9-11 happened, and you remember all of the political leaders getting on the steps of the Capitol hand in hand and praying with each other, right, that because of what had happened, it was a tragedy, and everybody's praying, there's great unity, and, and I remember President Bush speaking at the, at the, at the National Cathedral, and, and, and he's speaking, and we're talking about God, and, and I remember the emphasis of Christ at that time, too. I remember how people all over the world and especially all over our country were just really all of a sudden interested in spiritual realities. Like somehow because of what happened on 9-11, we all realized, uh-oh, our life is, is not as, uh, you know, we're not as immoral as we thought we were and, and maybe we should get right with God. And, and even my best friend from high school who I had talked to many times about the Lord called me during the week of 9-11 and said, I want to meet with you and I want to be baptized into Christ. And so and this is a guy who had been on a faith journey, but we met there in an empty room at that baptistry, and I baptized him the week after 9-11. I mean, it was really interesting what was happening then. People were flooding the churches, and, and, uh, and, and it was really interesting. But it wasn't very long before uh, things started getting back to normal, and churches started to kind of become like they had, and, and there was less, interested, less interest in spiritual realities. But one of the verses that we read back then was from 2 Chronicles chapter 7, a very kind of popular verse for, especially for our country, it seems like, and it goes like this, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will hear their land. And I'm sure that you have seen a Pinterest, you know, uh, a card that shows that, or a Facebook post that shows that passage, or an Instagram message that shows that passage. It's a very, very popular passage, and here we are, all these years later after 9-11, and we are kind of back into a time of what seems to be a bit of turmoil, but the pressure doesn't seem terror, terror from the outside. It seems to be struggle on the inside. It seems to be division in the inside. And what's interesting is it is not driving people back to church. It's very different than what it was years ago. It is not driving people back. In fact, what one of the things we're seeing is it seems like it is driving people away and into isolation. The, the dialogue in this can't really even be called a dialogue. The conversations today are filled with Uh, animosity and hatred and division, and you can't hardly say anything without people immediately reacting. 
And that's why we just want to have a real, honest look today and for the next few weeks at this passage of Scripture, particularly. And we want to look at where we are collectively as a nation and where we are as God's people. Now, in 2 Chronicles, where we're going to be for the next four weeks, particularly in chapter 7, what I want us to do today, and my job, you guys always have to understand, like, I give you a little inside baseball, you know I mean? It's just us today. And, and what, here's what happens. When I start a new series, I call it setting up the rigging for the rest of the team when they get ready to teach. In other words, what I do is set the context for what's about to happen, and then, then we dig into the text. And so uh, that's what's happening. I, I don't know what's happening out in the hallway, but so <laughs> there's terror right here in our hallway. But anyway, some kid is like, what? But anyway, so here's, that's, that's the deal. So I set up the rigging for the rest of the series. And so you have to understand the context of what is actually going on in this passage, all right? The last thing you want me to do as, a, as your pastor is to just go into a verse of Scripture and just, and just say, just take it out of context. So we have to always look at what did it actually say. And so we're going to look at 2 Chronicles 7, and I appreciate Pastor Jerry Gillis on this, his research on this, because this, this is a big help to me on this. Here's what King Solomon did. He is now in power in Israel, all right? We're in the Old Testament. King Solomon is the king. And King Solomon is going to build a temple, but it wasn't his vision. It was the vision of his father, David. One day, David was talking to the prophet, and he said to the prophet, Nathan, he said, it's not right for me to live in a house of cedar and God to have his presence in really the, a, a shelter, a tent. The Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's presence, should not be in a tent. We should build a big house for him, all right? And so that's what happened. And so, but David wasn't able to build that for a variety of reasons in God's sovereignty. And instead it was Solomon. And so Solomon was now going to build the temple for God. And it was going to be immaculate. It was going to be beautiful. It was going to be a place where all people could come together and they could worship. And so that's what happened. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 2, in chapter 3 and chapter 4, we have kind of a record of Solomon actually building the temple, overseeing the construction of the temple. And when you get into chapter 5 in Chronicles, you find the Ark of the Covenant is finally brought back into the temple, just as David had envisioned. And that was his desire. And when you get into chapter 6 then, you see this prayer of Solomon asking for God's blessing on Israel and asking for prosperity in Israel and and now that God's presence is going to be in the temple, he's just asking that, that God would just bless the people of Israel. And that is the context of then chapter 7, where we'll be today. And chapter 7 is this formal dedication of the temple of God to God. All right? So they're going to dedicate the temple. And the Bible says that the glory of God came down from heaven at the dedication of the temple. The glory of God filled the temple sanctuary in such a way that the priest could not even be in there. And it said that the glory of God was visible above the temple as well. The glory of God filled the temple. It was above the temple. It was all around the temple. And it was God's real and visible presence. Now that is the context. And then after building the temple, after the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the temple, after Solomon prays and then dedicates the temple, then God answers the prayer of Solomon. Now, this is a long passage, and I'm not going to put it on the screen because of that, all right? 
Here's what it says. Just listen to these words. When Solomon had finished building the temple and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all that he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his, in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people. Go, wait, wait, what? If I what? If I shut up the heavens so there's no rain, if I command locusts to devour the land, or if I send a plague among my people, comma, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal, heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me, if you walk before me faithfully as your father David did and do all I command and observe all my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne as, a covenant, as I covenanted with your, David, uh, your father David. And when I said you shall never fail to have a successor to rule over Israel. But if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land, which we know happened, which I have given them, and I will reject this temple, which we know happened, and I have consecrated for my name. I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples, which we know happened. This temple will become a heap of rubble. All who pass by it will be appalled and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? And people will answer, because they have forsaken the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why he brought all this disaster on them. Now that's the context of 2, Corinthians, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Now you never would have thought that, would have you? I mean, the middle of that context where God says, if you do this, then I will do this. But if you curse me or if you go away from me, then this temple is going to be destroyed. You think it is so great and grand and glorious now, but it will be a heap of rubble. Have you guys ever been to Israel? If you go to Israel or if you look now, where is the place where the temple was? There's this great mosque there with a great golden uh, roof on it there. And, and, and it, is, it is called the Dome of the Rock. And is that the temple of God? No, it's owned by the, by the Muslims now. And there's only one wall left called the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall. That's all that's left. This passage became exactly what God prophesied. In other words, the people of God did not follow God's decrees. They did not follow him, all right? But it's in the middle of this passage that this one verse of Scripture Verse 14, we use in our country for things like the National Day of Prayer and for other things. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Now, I want you to notice that, again, that word if, if my people, it's not capitalized because it's not the beginning of the sentence. There's a lot of stuff that happens before and a lot of stuff that happens after. And here's what I want you to know. This might be shocking to you on this last Sunday in December where we're all exhausted after opening presents. This is not a passage to America. I'm sorry. Is that shocking to anybody? 
This is not, in its context, a passage for America. This is not God's word for America. It's interesting because we always think in terms of us first instead of context first. We think, oh, this must be about the United States of America because we are indeed God's country. Well, no. America didn't even exist, as if you needed to know that. America didn't even exist. It wasn't even a thought. This was in the context of Israel. And how can we actually believe when we read this passage that it primarily talks about us? Some people think America must be God's chosen nation. No, we're not. America is not the chosen nation of God. Israel is God's chosen nation in Scripture. And whenever anyone else is referred to as a chosen nation, later, any other people of God, it's the church. In the Old Testament, it was Israel. In the New Testament, the people of God are the church. This was about Israel. And in fact, when it says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, this is not some little cute little formula for spiritual revival. It's a point-by-point response to Solomon's prayer in chapter 6. Solomon prays, chapter 7, God answers. Solomon prays for God's blessing. God says, you're going to get my blessing if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I will heal their land. And by the way, when he says heal their land, he's not talking about primarily a spiritual revival. He's talking about what he had just talked about in that verse. There's going to be famine. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be locusts that are sent. I'll heal their land if. And by the way, that if-then language is also very important. It's called conditional language. It's also covenant language. Covenant means if you do this, then I'll do this. And it happens twice in this passage, but God says, if, if you do this, then I'll do this. If my people, then I'll do this. If my people, that's covenant language. Now, all of that to say this, is there anything this passage of scripture could say about us now? And the answer is yes, because it's God's word. And God's word has a first audience, which is the people of Israel in the Old Testament. But it has a second audience, which is us, the people of God, his church. And when we read this, as we will over the next few weeks, we're going to see some things about us. Because when we read the scripture, we have to say, God, what did it say about them? And what does that say about us? But here's the biggest thing I want you to know. This is God's word. And God's word primarily speaks about who? About God. And what I want you to know in this passage is there's some things we can learn about God. This is not the primary point of my message, but but, but I want you to know this tells us, this passage tells us God is faithful. How do I know God is faithful? Right out of this passage of scripture, because he builds the temple, he establishes a covenant with his people. His people have always failed. They have always struggled. And by the way, that should encourage all of us because we are all in that same boat. We fail to live up with a covenant with God. They failed. And you know what God does? God has every right. He's completely justified. If he wants to do whatever he wants to do to them, he's justified. But instead, God promises and and just over and over and over demonstrates he is faithful to the promise. He's faithful. It also tells us that he's merciful and loving. How do I know that? Because God says to his people when the temple is dedicated, 
And he says to Solomon that he needs to communicate that when you go your own way, when you do your own thing, when you make a mess of things, if you turn back to me, I'll forgive you and I will change things. God is a merciful, merciful God. How many of you are glad about that, especially as we enter this year? God is a merciful God, but God's also relational. This, this verse tells us that God's deci- God des- decides that his presence is going to dwell with the people. His presence is going to dwell with the people, and that tells us that God is relational. And by the way, that has always been God's heart. In, in the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden, he created Adam and Eve, and he had a desire to have a relationship with them. And yet we know that there was a fractured relationship. We know that they broke that relationship with him. But God is relational. Now here's what I want you to do for just a moment, is step back away from the Old Testament passage, and I want you to step into the New Testament reality. Because here's what we learn about God through the New Testament. We learn through that, again, that God is faithful to his promise. God will keep his promise. The temple of God is now the people of God in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, we learn that God is faithful to his people. That's you. That's me. And he's saying that, that he will be faithful to forgive you of your sins. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, God demonstrates his own love for this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God is faithful to his people, and I am thankful for that. And it's, and it's if, you are, if you will come to Christ, If you would say, God, I'm sorry for my sin, God will be faithful to his promise with you that it will give you peace that passes understanding, a hope for eternal life. Jesus Christ, through him, we see that God is faithful. God is faithful. And we see that he's loving. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is a loving, merciful God that in Christ we would become the righteousness of God. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. In fact, we deserve just the opposite. But God is faithful to his covenant, and he's loving to his people. And we also know that God is relational. God is relational. Did you know in John chapter 1 it says, this is a passage we use at Christmas, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14 it says, and the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who comes from the father. And I love the way the message version paraphrases this. It says God moved into the neighborhood. God moved into the neighborhood. In other words, now God is with us. There's not some distant God. There's not some far off God. God is not at a distance. God is close. God is relational. And God is with us. And in the coming weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this passage of scripture and we're going to talk about who we are as God's people and what God requires of us but before we get there I just want to stop in one spot today verse 14 and that is the very beginning of that where it says if if who my people God starts right at the very beginning and says if my people if my people here's what I want you to know God could have said if those people God could have said to somewhere else around all the surrounding lands of Israel, if those people would get their stuff right, my people would be fine. In other words, if God would fix those people, then our people would be okay. And here's what I want you to know. When God says, if my people, he's not talking about the pagan nations around Israel. 
He's not talking about the neighbor down your street. He is talking about the messiness, the hardship, and the challenge within his own people. In the Old Testament, the Israelites. In the New Testament, the church, the people of God. And God says, if you want the land to be healed, it is if my people who are called by my name, that's where it starts. That's where it starts. And that's important to us. Why? Well, you might want to jot this down, but here's here's why. Because before we look at the ills of our land, we have to look at the ills of our heart. And that's where we're heading in this series. We're going to take a personal look at where God, what God wants to do in us. God, what do you want to do in my heart? What do you want to do in my life? And the reason I tell you that is because even though this was true of Israel in that time, it is true for us and God's people. It was true in the New Testament. It was true for the people of God, the church. God started with his people. When he sent them out on a mission into the mission field, he said, I want you to go to the ends of the earth, but before that, I want you to start right here in Jerusalem. I want you to start in your home base. Then you can go to Samaria, then Judea and the uttermost parts of the world. In 1 Peter, Peter the apostle writes, for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household, and then it moves out. You see, Peter is saying, look, if we're going to deal with the ills of our world, we have to first deal with the ills of our heart. Those of you who are parents, you get this. You walk to the grocery store, and uh, when it was your child, when your kids or my kids were young, go to the grocery store, I didn't walk around looking for somebody else's kids to discipline, right? It was started with my kids. Like, how do we get this right? That's my focus is what's going on. No, you can't have everything. You can choose one item. That's what my mom used to say. You can choose one item. That's all, you know. So like, I want this and this. No, one thing. That's all you're going to get. But if your kid goes crazy, it's your kid you need to deal with, right, because it starts in your house. And God's doing the same thing. Hebrews tells us that as well, by the way. Hebrews says, my son, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves. He, clen- he chastises everyone who accepts as, he accepts as his son. In other words, he starts in his house. And so what we're going to be doing in this series is saying, God, will you start in our house? Start in our church. Start in our place. Bring us to a place of repentance. In other words, let's deal with our own. And and before we try to fix everybody else, let's fix ourselves. And this is important. Jesus himself talked about this. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, don't judge lest you be judged. And then he said, don't look at taking the, the little speck out of your brother's eye. Look at the plank, look at the sequoia tree sticking out of your eye. And it was almost this humorous look Jesus had at like, you know, you're trying to pick out a little speck and you've got this huge like evergreen, you know. And he's like, can you not see that thing? It's not that you need to deal with something else. Maybe you do, but you first should probably deal with this right here because it's kind of embarrassing. And so what he's saying is, because in the church, a lot of times we can look out and say the problem of the world is the world. And what this passage is saying, the problem with the world is that my people who are called by my name need to humble themselves, seek my face, and pray. And that's what we're going to be focused on. And Jesus is saying to all of us, let's start right here in our hearts and in our homeland 
And let's look at what God wants to teach us. So that is very, very important as we look at this passage. Back in 2013, you guys may remember there were some really bad tornadoes that came through Moore, Oklahoma. You guys remember that? It just tore up the place. The, uh, I mean, it leveled the town, basically. And so there were some country artists, like Blake Shelton, who, uh, because he's from Oklahoma, decided to do a benefit concert for that place, which was a wonderful thing to do. And people had just lost their homes. They lost everything that they had. And, uh, but what, you know what they called that concert, that benefit concert? Healing in the heartland. Healing in the heartland. That's a good word for us today. Healing in the heartland starts in our heart. It starts with us. And today, what I'm going to do as we get ready to close is we're going to spend some time in prayer. And I'm just going to pray as we begin this series that God would allow us not to look at what everybody else is doing around us, what, what the politicians are doing or not doing, what protesters are doing or not doing. But first, let's look at where we are. And this series is going to lead us to a time of repentance collectively, where we really do what this passage says, that we would seek his face, humble ourselves, repent, turn our face toward God, and then from that point, allow God to just heal our heart and heal our land. So would you pray with me? God, we're thankful for the opportunity to walk through this passage of Scripture today and over the next few weeks. God, we're thankful for the chance to be able just to say, Lord, if we're going to pray this prayer that was prayed in the context of, of 2 Chronicles chapter 7, which is the building of the temple and then the covenant of God with his people. If we're going to pray what Solomon prayed, which was, God, we pray for your blessing. We pray for you to be among us. We pray for your presence to come down among us, God. We pray for your healing. God, the place that you directed Israel and Solomon's attention was right back to his own, his own home, his people. And so, God, we take that message today to heart that message that now we, the people of God, would come before you and say, God, that we want to humble ourselves. We want to pray. We want to seek your face. And God, in that moment, in those times, we realize that the problem is not out there. It begins with us. How can we be those forces of reconciliation in our culture? How can we bridge divides? How can we overlook offenses? How can we forgive our brother or sister? How can we work on us, God? That is our prayer. And so now for just a few moments, everybody, I just encourage you. Would you in these moments just pray, first of all, in this time a directed prayer that God would just allow you to have a clear view of yourself. Would you just pray that? God, let me see myself clearly. Just pray that. Is there any wicked way in us? The Bible says. See if there be anything in us, God.
now would you just pray that God would reveal that to you. If you can't see it clearly today, that over the next few weeks that God would reveal that to you. What are the ways in your heart, whether it be pride or greed or lust or anger or division, would you just pray right now in your own heart, God, reveal that to me. Reveal those things to me. Whatever they are, whatever blind spots I have, would you just pray for that for a moment? Now would you just pray that God would give you the courage not only to see those things, but to be honest about them, to be honest before the Lord, to see those things in your heart that keep you from Him. And that God would give you the courage to repent of those things, that you would come to a, a moment of true repentance. So God, as your people today, we just come before you again to say, we do open our eyes, open our hearts to see the ways in us. And then we do what, what David said in the Psalms, create in us now, God, a clean heart. Create a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. Renew a right spirit within me, God. Help it to start with us. Help it to start with us. So God, we pray for reconciliation in relationships. We pray for racial division, that, that instead of looking outside our door, we look in our door. We say, God, how can we build relationships with people that are unlike us in some ways? God, when it comes to the anger and criticism that so often happens, God, help us to have a view on that, not just a, a view outside, but a view on the inside. When have I contributed to a national dialogue that has taken us further away from the purpose of Christ? Help us then, God, to come back with that humble attitude, that attitude that says, God, I, I, I want truth, but I also want grace. I want to speak the truth, but I want to do it in love. I want to do it relationally, God. So, God, these are the things we pray for. We pray that, God, you would open our hearts and our minds over this next four weeks. And then as we begin to enter 2021, we would approach it with such realism, but also such optimism, God, that we know that you are ultimately the one who provides, who provides restoration and healing and renewal. And so, God, we pray for that today. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me? And we're going to close in worship.